Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, feelers, and welcome to episode 138 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and alongside me is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. This week, we get a chance to cover yet another based-on-a-true-story biopic, but this time it's centered around not one, but two individuals. Green Book tells the story of the unlikely friendship between Dr. Don Shirley, an accomplished classical piano player, and Tony Lip, an Italian bouncer who he enlists to drive him on a concert tour in the Mid and Deep South. It's a story that I didn't really know anything about, and I'm definitely looking forward to conversating about it with you, man. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that we were able to get this on the schedule. I actually think that Dr. Shirley would probably reprimand us for using the word conversating, though. Probably, yes. <laughs> he would. He'd be <laughs> correcting us right now. Yeah, and, and that's fine. You can correct us all you want, because you're <laughs> smarter than us. Well, before we get into the actual discussion, are there any announcements that we have to anyone listening? Yeah, let me throw a couple quick things out there for the listeners. One, I just wanted to give a quick mention to audio quality in case anyone has noticed a dip in that over the last, I'd say, three to four episodes that we've done. Um, we haven't addressed it on the show actually yet until now, but my mic, my podcasting mic, crapped out on me. It died one day. Luckily, it was after I came home from interviewing director Matthew Heineman, so th- or uh, director Sean Anders, actually, for Instant Family. So that was good. I was able to get that done with good quality, and then my mic died. So I am currently on a backup mic right now. My replacement arrives tomorrow, so this should be the last episode with kind of a lesser quality than we're, than you may be used to. And we're excited about getting back to normal. Other quick notes, just wanted to let you know that that November donor pick episode of Ratatouille will be coming out later this week. So keep an eye on your feeds for that one. And our voting for December's donor pick episode has begun. Our patrons have received their voting email, and they've gotten their five choices. They're actually going to be choosing our Christmas movie for us this year. Uh, every year we do an annual holiday film, and uh, we're going to let the listeners pick. So they will be choosing from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Miracle on 34th Street. Somebody asked me, and I don't know why, but I'm going to go and clarify and say it's the original, the 1947 version. Um, the Santa Claus, starring Tim Allen. Love Actually, and The Polar Express. So those are the five films that are up for voting. You can uh, become a voter anytime between now and December 10th, or become a patron and actually vote in this poll anytime between now and December 10th by visiting patreon.com slash feelinfilm. I think it's as little as, not I think, I know it's as little as a dollar a month to become a voter in these polls. So hopefully... You'll check that out, and if you have any dollars you would like to throw our way to support us, we would love to have it, and love to have your input on those polls as well. And the great thing about these movies is that, for me specifically, they'll be watched regardless of whether or not they get the full-on vote. So they're all great movies, and I look forward to covering any of them. So take your pick, have some fun, and Merry Christmas. (laughs) All right, with that being said, let's drop into 
our movie review conversation here. This is where the spoilers live. We're going to be talking about everything in this movie, beginning to end, all the good stuff, all the stuff that we thought that we thought was great, what made us feel something. And so, be warned, you have been. All right. One word takeaways. Aaron, kick us off, man. One word takeaway. Yeah. So I, I saw this film and I came home raving about it, which is why it has arrived on our schedule tonight. Um, I told you that I thought that you would really enjoy it, and it, it really impacted me in a way that it was something I wanted to discuss. I wanted to be able to promote it to listeners and to people in the Feelin' Film family so that we could get them out to see this film. I think it's a good family movie uh, for Thanksgiving time and Christmas time, uh, for any time, really. And, you know, the one word that I would sum up my experience with was inspirational. Listen. It's no surprise that this film is divisive because of how it handles racism with a very soft touch, at least compared to um, some other recent films this year, which I hope we can talk about later. Cynics will probably say that the narrative is too conventional and oversimplified, and I've even read that people think it tries to solve racism with a road trip. But that's very reductive, and I don't think it could be farther from the truth. These two men's journey is one that leads to mutual respect and admiration for one another and genuine friendship. And it's it's charming, it's hilarious, and yes, it is crowd-pleasing too. But most importantly to me is that their budding friendship really provided me with this uplifting shot of hope that I think the racial conversation in America desperately needs. And uh, it provides kind of a brief respite, really, from the righteous anger of some of those other films by instead focusing on how patience and time spent together in relationship, and that's the key, can bring about real human change. And I, for one, find that very inspiring. You couldn't have said it better. And I think that there's a lot about this movie that leaves you wanting to watch it more than once, not just to pick up on things that you may have missed, because I don't think there's a lot that you can miss the first time around unless you fall asleep or something. But the the rewatchability is what inspired my one word takeaway of approachable. And I can't say that this movie was on my radar in terms of like the most anticipated. Those have come and are still coming in the next 30 days. So I'm excited about those, but I'm glad that you recommended this to me. And the thing about our friendship, Aaron, is that when you talk to me offline and you say, this is a movie that you would enjoy. And this is the reason why I enjoyed it. I'm pretty much going to be in on whatever that is. I mean, when it comes to any new movies that come out, I'm going to catch the big blockbusters. I'm going to catch the ones that are pretty obvious stuff that we're going to cover on the show but there's always the one or two or three or maybe even six that are out there throughout the year that you have an opportunity to catch as screeners that I don't. And you give me that kind of personal critical touch here. Like, hey, this is one that even if we don't cover it, you should see this. And there's a handful that have you, you've already recommended that are on my watch list that hopefully I'll get a chance to to get to. But a movie like this was not one that I didn't necessarily get that excited about. 
And I think what drew me in the most was the fact that it seemed like a movie that had the potential to tell a story of race relations, like you said, that didn't spotlight that in your face, this is what it's like and you need to realize it kind of thing. Although the fact is we need those. Um, it's a film that at its core looks at a relationship as being a way, but not necessarily the way to solve an issue that is definitely a hotbed right now in our culture. I would even argue that it's not even trying to solve a problem in as much as it's depicting the reality of what it would look like for two people to find common ground on something and stand together in that thing. And at the same time, not ignoring the issues that still attack both the individuals and that relationship. There was another word that I was wrestling with before I came up with approachable, and I would say that's reciprocal because this is equally about Tony's story in some ways as it is about Don's. I mean, I'm not going to say it's equal, equal, but I think there's a lot that Tony learns and there's a lot of character growth in him equally as much as there is with Don. And the fact is, at least from a story standpoint, even if this wasn't based on a true story from a narrative standpoint, they need each other. They both kind of, sharpen one another as this journey goes along and i can see reasons why it could s seem kind of hokey and kind of like not even a buddy cop relationship but kind of like a an odd couple type of relationship but i don't agree with it because there's a lot more going on here that i think has a level of importance not just with racism but with the idea of understanding and understanding deeply in a friendship that matters. So I, I was really, really surprised. I remember leaving the theater and going, man, I enjoyed that a lot more than I expected that I would, but the expectation wasn't that I wouldn't. It was just that, okay, what's this going to be like? And, um, and it was good. So. Excellent. Well, let me, let me start off with a question because this is one that was kind of on my mind uh, over the last few days. I didn't know anything about the story like from a historical standpoint, usually when it comes to biopics, I, I either know the story well enough to be interested or I don't know it at all. And so I'm kind of in that happy mix of like, well, if it's not true, I'm not going to know until after I read something <laughs> or I know enough about the story to not know any details that may have been added or taken away. But I didn't know if you had any background of the story before going to see it, if you had read anything uh, and if so, if you had, how did it inform your movie experience? But if not, what was your reaction overall to, to seeing it, having little knowledge? So answer one, you know, I'm giving you two questions and two, two, two whys. So if you I saw it, or, got sorry. It. I think I got it. I think I okay. got it. So, so no, I did not know anything about this story, just like you. This one is not a well-known story. I mean, this is, that's kind of the point of Green Book being made, I think, is that Dr. Shirley is not someone that most folks know about. Um, and this is also part of the reason this is divisive, because we are telling very... Provocative? No, hmm? I, I'm trying to find... I was trying to think of the... You know, he is a very successful human being, and he's a black American in a time when it was hard for black Americans to be successful. And not many people know his story. And so to have that told... And to finally be done after his death and kind of 
quote-unquote through this white lens in theory, you know, in some ways based on screenwriters and such and director, I understand why some folks at least initially can become frustrated with the thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I was really glad that this story was being told. Um, I didn't know anything about it going into it. I think I had seen a trailer, possibly maybe part of a trailer for this one. Uh, the reason that I went to see this, the reason I chose to go to my screening was because of its response at the Toronto International Film Festival. And at that film festival, uh, this movie, I think it was the closing film of the festival, if I'm not mistaken, but it got a standing ovation. It was well discussed on Twitter and and other social media spheres about how the response to this film came out. People absolutely loved it. And so I was like, okay, well, clearly that's something that I need to see if audiences are responding that well to it. And, you know, my first thought after seeing it was literally, I get that. Like, I had that same emotion generated inside of me. I wanted to cheer. Like, I wanted to clap. I was just so happy. I felt hope. And I felt a a sense of, you know, genuine just relief that two people could could find this common ground and come together. I tell you, one of the scenes that mattered the most to me in the entire film is when Tony's, I believe it's his brother-in-law, I may be mistaken on exact relation, but they're at the dinner table and Dr. Shirley comes to the door and everybody just freezes, you know, and they and you're you're really you're you're kind of lumping your throat as a viewer. You're like, "Oh no, are we please gosh, don't let's not make him go through something else again. He just put himself out there. And so you expect that it to be, it will be his wife or Tony that will say something that's like, you know, that breaks the ice. And instead it's that brother-in-law that speaks up and says, well, what are you doing? Make this man some room. And I just, man, I was like, thank you. Like I appreciate seeing that play out on screen and it made me feel good. It made me feel happy for the entire characters and and i liked getting to learn about his life story i liked getting to learn about you know this classical pianist that intentionally traveled the south trying to spread culture like that that was a ballsy move um and he put himself through the ringer to do that and i think that it's really great that this got to the big screen yeah and to to see him seek out someone that he probably knew was going to have issues with him regardless to, to put himself out there at the, at the local level, I think spoke to how confidently he felt about that tour. And so we're set up early on with this relationship that is very polar opposite. Like, I don't think he was asking for trouble. I think that from the very beginning what we get is the hints that Don, if I can call him Don, so Dr. Shirley, I think he'd be okay with that since it's a podcast, but I think he would, the fact that he sought out a guy like Tony, knowing somewhat of his history, knowing kind of what he was getting into, I think that kind of foreshadowed what he wanted to accomplish with this tour, which is if I'm going to, take this tour if i'm going to travel through this i mean i don't know if there was a black person available to drive him 
but I also don't think he intentionally said, I'm going to have, I'm going to have an Italian bouncer as my driver. I think he sought out Tony because of what he heard about him being a great driver, being a escorter or whatever it was. He sought him out based on his credentials, not based on his background. And I think that was Fairley's hint into what we were going to get throughout the narrative, which was a story based on a person, not on a person's description, um, a story based on who a person was, not what they were addressed as, that kind of thing. And I didn't really pick up on that, obviously, until later on in the movie, but I think it was – I'd like to believe it was a very intentional thing on the part of Peter Fairley. And here's the weird thing. I didn't know until after the movie the connection with Peter Fairley. I said, I, I recognize that director's name. Where is he from? And then I looked him up, and I was like, wait a minute. There's something about Mary? Really? It's that guy? Because that is not my kind of comedy, to say the least. And to know that a director – who has comedic chops as a director, but has a specific genre that he caters to, to see him come up with something like this was incredibly surprising and pleasantly surprising. And I'm glad. I'm glad that I didn't realize that until afterwards because I may have had some preconceived notions. I, I wouldn't have expected weird, like, hair gel jokes to, cop, to pop up in this movie. But I, it made the comedic parts feel more genuine and not feel like jokes. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was going to say the exact same thing. If I had known who directed this and what his previous filmography contained before I saw it, it would have affected my preconceived notions going into the film. And it would have it would have changed things. Like, I don't know how much, right? It's no different than watching a trailer changes things. You know, you have your experiences altered in some way but it would have been altered for me because I would have thought something where I would have been waiting in the back of my mind. I would have been kind of wondering when we were going to get some kind of when it was going to go into the crazy joke level, like when we were going to get to dumb and dumber kind of humor. Mm -hmm. And I, I just I was really impressed that he had this kind of level of family friendly uh, comedy in him. It was just it was refreshing to me. Yeah, I think that's smart writing, and I think it's smart directing because it shows a level of comedic restraint. Uh, comedy is something that I've realized I want to do more of. I feel like that's – if I'm going to begin writing heavily, I want to do that. I don't do drama very well, and I know that there has to be a very delicate balance of when you drop in lightheartedness in a otherwise heavy – toned film and that may be where some of the criticism comes from is the fact that we have this light-hearted feel of a movie because there are little jokes peppered throughout the narrative it goes down easy and it's kind of what we often call crowd-pleasing it's not a deep complex narrative so i there is criticism out there that that's a negative and I wondered, do you – crowd-pleasing can be positive and negative, but I think with the subject matter here, that's where it gets divisive. And I wanted to ask you where that kind of comes across in your world. Yeah, I think this is the entryway into what we really are going to have to just talk about here, and that is – I mean this film is about one thing. It, it is about two men, and essentially at its heart, it is – 
a, a story about a man who overcomes his inherent racism uh, and, and is able to accept Dr. Shirley for who he is. And then, you know, correspondingly to that, it's also about Dr. Shirley and what he learns from Tony in his side of this, this friendship that is, is brought on between the two of them. I think that's lost right now in a lot of what I've read out there um, in the film criticism world about this movie, uh, being completely from Tony's point of view and all about Tony this and Tony that. I think people are missing the point. I, I don't know what movie they watched because to me, while I would agree that you know Vigo is probably our main lens through the film that surely transforms in you know very visible ways he he changes and i and i think that he he i'm sorry obviously he changes i think that he provokes a change in vigo's character in uh, tony lip that is equally important right so they 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 have this give and take for both of them and the way it's done, yes, it's crowd-pleasing, yes, it's fun, and it's sweet, and it's happy, and you're rooting for them, and it's kind of, quote-unquote, hitting all of the tropes. Um, you know, one thing that jumped out at me was this idea where they, you know, they get arrested, and of course the cop you know, wants to, to take Dr. Shirley in because of the sunset law, and so they take him to jail, and then... Later, the film gives us another cop moment, you know, after things have changed between the two of them. And and so it's generating that feeling in the audience of, oh, no, oh, no, it's going to happen again. They're going to get arrested or whatever. It's going to be another racist cop. But they flip the script and it's a non-racist cop who just wants to help and be, be nice. And so here's the thing, Patrick. I think there is a level of... There's a difference of people who watch movies and, and in general in their lives and, and how they view movies is just a reflection of their own personal way of thinking. If you want to see the worst in this movie, you could see that as lame and you could see that as, oh, of course there's a great cop and they don't have to worry about it and he just wants to help the black guy. Oh, oh, oh that's so un unbelievable, you know. You could see this film... And you could take all of its crowd-pleasing nature and its easy friendship kind of generation. Like, they don't go through major conflicts between the two of them. They start off very, you know, very respectful of each other. And you could see that as unrealistic if you're a cynic. Or you could see it as hopeful. If you want to believe that the best in people and you want to believe that relationship and listening to each other and actually experiencing life with one another and being willing to let each other make mistakes and to tactfully point out and show each other things about it, you know, things about your personalities that could be different or could be misconceptions that you may hold. I think you can see this film through a different way entirely in which it makes you want to believe and that this can happen and be repeated in the world today. And so it's, it's that it goes down to that, you know, like if you're a cynic, this crowd pleasing aspect of the film annoys you and it gets under your skin because it's not what you see on the street every day. 
But if you are the hopeful kind of person, you see this and you're like, yes, I'm cheering. I'm happy. I love my heart is full because I want to believe this can be reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I had thoughts when I left the theater feeling this was kind of like a Remember the Titans where it was celebrating the successes of relationships that shouldn't exist in a time period when they shouldn't exist. And the fact is, these were the exceptions to the rule. We have to fully admit that. But it's okay to celebrate the exception to the rule. I think that what I'm understanding about film is that it should be, and I stress the word should, it should be to form first and foremost entertain us. And I think it does for the most part. I think when you leave a theater, you feel something. It's what our podcast is really all about. How do we react to it? But when you hit a lot of hot button issues like racism, sex trafficking, war films, things that have the opportunity to present a message, there is an expectation, maybe a small one, but an expectation that you need to be educated, that you're meant to learn something from this story that's being told. That's kind of why I think biopics get a lot of the scrutiny that they do. One of the reasons why, I mean, there are many, and I don't want to get into those reasons because we talked about them numerous times, but one of those reasons being the technical inaccuracies devalue the life of the person or people that are being depicted on screen. We are losing information. We are losing that education value. And Forgive it or not, but I think when it comes to a subject like racism, which is so heavily embedded in our culture right now, and you have the extremes living on both sides of this issue, when you have a movie like this that could be seen as walking the middle road, it could be criticized for not taking a stance one way or the other. And that's where I think some of that criticism is. But the fact is, there's truth that exists in the middle road. <laughs> because the middle road takes time to get there. It's a long road when you're in the middle. If I were to make a conscious storytelling choice, I would say, if you're going to give a full gamut of this relationship, make it a TV series. Give us a 12-episode TV series and place each, each episode in one of these towns, Little Rock, Arkansas being one of them. Holla. I, you know, I wrote and, it down. I hoped you, I hoped you saw, I mean, it's fast. Oh, no, it's like it's really fair. quick. Yeah. I was like, yeah, oh. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't stop there. No, you st go back. Like you Stay. go back to Robinson. Uh, what was it? Robinson performance. Robinson, yeah. I think it was Robinson musical. <laughs> yeah. You go back there. dead <laughs> But I think if you're really going to capture the full gamut of this relationship, it works best in long form because this was a, this was a long, this was like eight weeks. This was two months worth of stuff, you know? This is actually a year and a half worth of trip. So okay. their relationship, this this exact – what happened here was over the course of a year and a half to two years of travel together. Okay. And um, the writer, Nick Valonga, who's Tony's son, had talked to Dr. Shirley, and Dr. Shirley had made it very clear that he wanted this story to be told. And his one caveat was, you can't do this until after I pass away has to be after my death, but I want you to take everything that you know from my story with myself, what you know from your father, and I want you to tell it. Most believe that the reason, the main reason he wanted us to wait until after his death was because of the sexuality reveal. 
um, because he didn't want to have to, to deal with that, and understandably so. So just for a quick point of reference, it, it is actually all of these things took place, and they were condensed into a two-month period for the movie to make it more streamlined for you know cinematic purposes. Sure. But uh, Nick says that you know all of these things happen. The YMCA scene with Doctor Shirley and the other man happened, and then all the other places, you know, some of the things didn't happen necessarily in the city that they put them. But you're right. right. I, I think what I'm getting at is it is a long period of like story to tell and different experiences. I disagree with you though. I, I would argue that I wouldn't want a long form series of this because I think okay. that it would, I think it would actually escalate or make it worse with the idea of it being a trope, because then you would be kind of solving a mini problem in every single city. Cause each city would have to have its own conflict of some sort. That's true to be, to be solved. And I, and I like the way that we, slowly grew in their relationship over the course of this road trip. I mean, that's what road trip movies are. That's what happens. And right. I really felt like they did such a good job of it. I think so too. The The truth is long form or short form. I think what we get successfully is a really great depiction of this relationship. And I think Viggo Mortensen and his transformation is right up there with Gary Oldman from Darkest Hour and Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. I did not recognize him until maybe the second time I saw the trailer because of that real thick Italian accent and all the weight that he put on. And even even uh, Linda Cardinale, uh, Cardellini, you know, who I love from Freaks and Geeks, I just momentarily forgotten that she was in this movie. And I think that's a testament to the incredible acting and the way in which these characters really immerse themselves into this role. I haven't seen a lot with Mahershala Ali and that's to my detriment, I, I admit, but I love the fact that I'm not looking at actors playing characters when I watch this movie. And I think it's equally about as much about a transformation, but even more so about the immersion that these guys put into this role. I'd like to believe personally that Ali and Mortensen are now good friends as a result of a movie like this. And for different reasons, obviously, but finding great common ground of being great actors. And I think that the way in which they maybe feel about each other as actors carries itself in a movie like this. It, everything feels genuine to me, even if it takes place in a shorter period of time, using some of the so-called tropes that we might recognize, it still feels like a genuine friendship. It doesn't feel manufactured because we get both sides of this relationship. It's not a one-sided affair. I mean, Tony's dealing with his own stuff, you know? Well, I think that's because it's realistic. It's a yeah. realistic depiction of friendship. It's not – It's as, as much as people call it crowd-pleasing, it's not a movie version of a friendship where – you're overly emotional and overly happy and experiencing these great highs together. And, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's all subtle and nuanced. Mm -hmm. The moments of friendship occur in somebody assisting somebody else in writing a letter. They're yeah. very, very brief, and they're very subtle. Um, and you can feel them in the characters. The performances are both phenomenal. 
Yeah. Um, I'm not quite as high on Vigo as you are as far as like thinking he's that level of transformative. I will say I, I paid attention to that in my second viewing of the film today because you had I'd seen your notes about how you thought he was kind of, you know, a Gary Oldman level of performance there. And I, I think I think he's phenomenal. I really do. I what's impressive to me is the way that I think this is what you were saying is that, you know, you don't see actors. Like I see the characters mm-hmm. and there's lots of films where I'm very praise, you know, praising of the performances. But at the same time, I simultaneously can see the actor as well as the character. Right. I didn't really see that here. Like to me, this was Tony Lip and Dr. Don Shirley. Right. Um, 100% yeah. without question. And his wife, Linda Cardinelli, like as well. I think she was excellent. I, Spot on. Yeah. Agree, agree, agree. <laughs> the other half of this that, that I see is you have Tony, who is this Italian white guy. Two thing, One thing that I am, one thing that I'm definitely not. Um, and what I picked up on this was this casual racism that he has. There's this really, really great moment near the beginning of the film where Dolores is in the kitchen, Tony comes home and his whole family sitting there watching the football game. <laughs> and he's like, what are you do? What are you guys doing here? And they're like, yeah, we, uh, you know, we came over cause you know, we, we wanted to make sure Dolores was okay. And he looks in and there's these two black guys that are working, I guess on the refrigerator or the furnace or something electronic or electric. And we see her just, you know, being completely, you know, aloof to all of it. And then, Tony comes in, sees the glasses that she's offered them water in, and he proceeds to just casually put them in the garbage. And so we see this first instance of this kind of casual racism. Now, I did not make this word, this phrase up, casual racism. I read it from a, from an article, but I think it, it really hits on what I feel like I was trying to articulate when I was trying to understand what is this? And it's this racism that is just kind of embedded in how he's grown up defined by his geography and defined by his upbringing where there's no conflict between he and Dolores. Like he's not yelling at Dolores because she offered these guys water. He's just like, okay, these guys drank out of my glasses. Those glasses are now tainted. I'm going to put them in the trash can. And you and I and everybody else in the theater are going ha 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 laughing and kind of, kind of this awkward way. But he sees it as like, okay, that's just the next thing I have to do. And that surprised me because that's the character that we start getting at the very beginning. And that's the starting point we get for his personality. He honestly doesn't care that Dr. Don Shirley is black. He's just looking for a payday. The way he negotiates the 100 to 125 uh, plus expense or plus room and board, all this stuff is really about a job. And I think what I love about his character growth is that he learns to care about Dr. Don Shirley. Yes, stemmed from the fact that he's black, but also the fact that he learns more about him. That the one of my favorite scenes is the is the fried chicken scene, where he's trying to convince him in the car, said, "Try this. This is good. It's amazing." And you see this contrast of this well-educated classic piano player holding this piece of chicken with his pinkies up in the air, nibbling on it, 
<laughs> and you contrast that with this big Italian dude just grabbing it like like a motorcycle handle and just gnawing at the bone. And I, it, it's a great visual humor for me. It's subtle, but it also speaks to the beginning of this awkward friendship where they're learning from each other. And then, of course, we get into the beauty that is the the letters from uh, you know from Tony to his to his wife Dolores, and how through those letters he's actually growing. I love the fact that at the very end of that whole sequence of the letter writing, he actually doesn't need Don's help at that point. Like he writes this Tony letter, and those are just really great pockets of moments where I feel like they've kind of learn from each other and they're sharpening one another, as I said before. And it's a beautiful thing because it's not a white guy trying to rescue a black guy. It's both these guys trying to rescue each other, trying to save each other from these preconceived notions that they have about one another, because there may be obvious racism that exists that attacks Don, but there's some, there's some prejudices that exist in him towards Tony. And he's got to own up to that. And I think that Fairly handles that really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got lots to say about that. <laughs> so, I, the uh, mic's to you, sir. <laughs> I no, I I agree with everything you just said. And I mean, this is why I love the film so much is how it deals and how it handles racism and this casual racism, as you put it. I typically refer to it as inherent racism. It's a learned. Racism. It is something that you grow up with, and that's to your point. There's, um, you know, something in our notes that says, "Did Tony know that he was racist when the movie begins?" I, I don't think Tony knew he was racist, and I think there are. I think race, real racism, to me, is is hate. Is what we we believed is is a choice, right? It is a a known feeling of superiority to someone else um, or belief that they are inferior. What Tony has is, yeah, it's casual, it's inherent racism because of what he's saying is judging and stereotyping a person because of their skin color, but there is not a hatred behind it. That's the difference. And what I always go back to my my comparison to this when I've been talking to people about this film is a couple years ago in Get Out, the movie that Jordan Peele made. I don't remember if you remember this scene, but when uh, the, the son meets her father, the white girl's father, for the first time, uh, he meets him and he's like acting very, quote unquote, black. He's like, hey, what's up, my dog? And he, he asks him specifically, like, do you play basketball? And I that is a life-changing moment for me, Patrick. And this is a, speaks to what film can do for us and speaks to why I think that Green Book is important. Because Get Out did that for me, so I know for a fact that a movie like Green Book can do it for someone else. When I saw that, I laughed my butt off, and I went home, and I thought about it, and I realized I do that. Like, I, when I talk about my black friends, I think about them in terms of, or I often did think about them in terms of like, oh, you know, they're more athletic, ha ha ha. That's inherent racism. That's not me degrading them, but it's me stereotyping based on a skin color. Because like, oh, because everybody who's good at basketball is black, so therefore you must be good at basketball because of your skin color. Right? And it's it's 
putting someone in a box of like, that's what you can be good at because that's what I have, I associate you with. And so I think that Green Book does a great job of showing this as well throughout with Tony's inherent racism, the stuff about fried chicken. It's so subtle. It's so beautifully done. Right. It's, what do you mean? You know, your for your people eat fried chicken. He, I wrote down so many. I wrote down so many examples of this, right? I mean, you called out the one. I think they were plumbers. I'm not sure, but when the people were over at the house, you know, and the and the the glasses, it, it almost feels like he kind of does it because the people in the room called it out. Like like mm. he wouldn't have done it if they weren't there. But it's, it was it, it was even so. It's it's a almost like a not it's like a reactionary thing like he's not thinking about it and choosing to do it out of anger and then there's when shirley meets him he says do you foresee any issues working with a black man tony says no just the other day the wife and me had a couple color guys over at the house and then <laughs> and then it's followed up by a joke dot 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 for drinks right call back to the glasses ha 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 yeah but in that beautiful line of writing to me see that says to me it's like how many times do we say that without even realizing, you know, white people do this all the time. Oh, I've got a black friend. I'm not racist. I've got, yeah. I've got tons of black friends. I fight this all the time personally with the podcast. Um, you know, we have, we have tons of, of black fellow podcasters that we know and, and work with. Sometimes it's really easy to be like, Hey, do you want to come on and talk about X movie? Because it's a quote unquote black movie. Like, that is the kind of thing that I think has to be fought against in America, and I, I love it because Green Book makes us wrestle with it. It makes me wrestle with it. It makes me look inside and go, oh, crap, Like I could have said that thing. The like Tony waiting for Dr. Shirley's assistant to load the trunk, like it's his job. It, you know, when he's getting ready to go off in the trap. And it's, again, it's, it's great because it's played for comedy. It's this kind of funny scene where there's like a standoff between the two of them. And Tony's like crossing his arms, like, I'm not going to do it. And you know, the other guy has to go. <laughs> Finally, he goes and does it. Um, parks the car when he parks the car to get out and go pee at the very beginning of the journey. Mm -hmm. There's a quick shot of him coming back. He starts to walk away. He turns, he walks back in, he grabs his wallet off the dashboard involuntary reaction just like this is what i know to do and he look there's a brief shot where he looks back and meets eyes with dr shirley and he kind of shrugs like like he realizes like i don't know why i'm doing this because i really don't have any fear at all of you taking my wallet but i feel like this is what i'm supposed to do because this is mm -hmm. what i've learned um you know in the letter to his wife he says i saw dr shirley play tonight he doesn't play like a colored guy He's basing this thing on on things he knows, and it's 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 phenomenal because every one of those lines can be a zinger. And I I guess I I, I boil it all down to say what I kind of already said is that I think that the important factor of this film is that it can potentially reach people who don't see that they have this in themselves, and. Help them to understand that maybe when I say this thing or when I have this preconceived notion of a person, it's actually because of their race and it's because of something that I've just always been – I've grown up seeing and knowing all my life. And I need to be more conscious about how I think and try to change that because it's – again, it's not what I consider to be racism because it's not out of hatred. It's not out of anger. 
it's something that can be changed <laughs> and can easily be, you know, washed out of your way of thinking. And I, and I think that's important. And I think that this film handles it in a way that is so opposite of the majority of race based um, filmmaking that we've seen just in this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that word in my intro about righteous anger. You know, a lot of these films kind of show, listen, this is the hatred that has existed for years and oh my God, it still exists. That's awful. And it sucks. And we need to see that. And we need to confront that. Yeah. This is a different thing. And I think it can coexist. And I know I'm being long winded. I got one more and I'll, then I'll stop for a second. But, um, you know, I want to address, you know, I had a, a conversation with a, a friend, a fellow critic about this, and he and I did not see eye to eye. Okay. He's an African-American. He, he, he and I did not see eye to eye. He did not like so much about the way that this film was portraying the, the racism, you know, situation. And I was trying to argue that there are these two ways you can see things. And he just, he wasn't, he wasn't accepting it. And I, we have to understand because of the things he's experienced in his life, I will never experience those things. And so for him, it's, it's very hard to see this as a hopeful thing. It's very hard for him to see this as what I'm talking about, where someone can subtly come to understand that these inherent things inside the, inside the way that they think can be changed. Whereas he's experienced this and he's, He's felt pain because of it. And so it's something that I do think No, there is no one film fits all solution to addressing racism and where America's history has dealt with it and where we stand now. And that's why I think this is so important is because it may not work for him, right? and, And it's okay. And I would never try to convince him that his experience is incorrect. But I hope that we can get to a place where black, white, Asian, you know, Native American, Hispanic, whatever, everybody can begin to respect and understand that each person is interacting with a film differently. And you know what? If this film is a benefit and changes my perspective and helps me to grow as a person and maybe tackle something about myself that needs to be confronted, then it's okay. And that's good. And it's, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not negative just because it didn't do that for you. So I love it. And that's what I love. That's what I think is so great about this movie. Okay. I'm going to get really weird and take a sideways segue with, uh, I'm going to call back to 10 Cloverfield lane for a minute. (laughs) Say what? Yeah. Specifically something that the director, Dan Trachtenberg, said about the ending, the divisive ending. He, and I, I might be misquoting this, but he said, generally speaking, that it's possible to hold two opposing ideas in your head. Or this idea of you can have two things happening at once and they can both be true. A while back, I was having a conversation. Um, one thing that our church has been trying to do is this thing called the bridge where once every month, um, and we've kind of gotten off track because we've got a, some changes happening um, within the church. But once a month, as a church, what we've been trying to do is we strive to be more – we're a church that is intentionally trying to be diverse. We're trying to be more conscious of creating a unified body 
among racial lines. That's a big deal for us. And so once a month, what we try to do, predominantly a white church, is go and connect with a predominantly black church that share that same kind of idea and engage with their their culture for a little bit, but with the potential idea to form relationships and maybe build off of that and build these relationships across the city with other churches where we're trying to create this unified body of believers. And coming out from one of those, there was a discussion about the comparison between systemic racism and personal responsibility. Because at one church, both of these were black churches, at one church, there was a heavy emphasis on systemic racism. And that's the cause of the general cause of the division that we have as a country. This other church emphasized heavily on personal responsibility of the black community. And they both kind of caused a stir and they created a really great opportunity for conversation. And something that came out of that conversation was, why can't it be both? Why does racism have to be one way or the other? And of course, the, the answer is it doesn't, because it is both. It is both systemic and a very real problem. And both, and also, a, there's a level of personal responsibility that comes from, from, from that on both the black and the white community side. So tying that back into Green Book, I think what this movie does is it invites both. It sees two characters, two people that are living in a world where systemic racism exists, even if it's in one part of the country. But also there's a level of personal responsibility that they both have to have for each other, and it has to start with each other. This movie, in my opinion, at least within the characters' lives, isn't trying to say these guys started a revolution because as you guys, as you and I said at the beginning of this, we didn't know about this story. This is a quiet story. And it's about two men who were just trying to get a job done. One was trying to further his career and, and do something important in terms of musicianship and his culture. And another character was trying to just have a job to take care of his family. And what I think Green Book does successfully is it balances out those two issues that can live cohesively in a world and maybe not solve the problem, but at least show us that both can exist and that there is opportunity to move forward with both of those ideas in mind, recognizing that both exist and approaching both of those issues very sensitively, very delicately, and very um, I don't know, insert other positive word here. Respectfully. Respectfully, thank you. And I feel like that's where the optimism stems from, is the fact that it's not a whitewashing, it's not a, hey, nothing else exists besides this thing. I think the frustration comes from the fact that this is the exception to the rule, but it doesn't have to be. And just because it's the exception to the rule doesn't make it untrue. 100% agree. It's Fantastic, fantastic thought. I had no idea where you were going when you brought up Ten Cloverfield Lane, and I was like, "How is this going to tie in?" But that—that's great, man. Um, I kind of want to tie this up, wrap this little part up here, but with this. Recently, there was a big battle on Twitter this past week um, through around filmmaker Scott Derrickson, 
Okay. He has been very outspoken. He says what he feels and he's been frustrated with the way that some film critics have responded to him about things and have, have said things on Twitter. And he made a tweet that said something to the effect of when we're talking about biopics and stories, this, there was a firestorm around some things he said around Bohemian Rhapsody about how you have to take the film on its terms and not judge it based on what you want it to be. And you and I have talked about this ourselves. I thought that was great that this kind of came into public, you know, forefront. Well, with regards to that, and if we're going to talk about this from the standpoint of what is the film trying to be, what is it trying to say? Well, let's take it from the horse's mouth here. Because Nick Valonga, Valalonga, see, I can't even say it right. I'm with Dr. Shirley. We should just shorten that name. Yeah. Right. But again, oh, but see, look at that. There it is. And that's that's the thing. I can't believe I just fell into that on accident. But that's what I was getting at about an evenness to this. When Dr. Shirley asks Tony to change his name because it can't be pronounced, that is the same flippin' thing as you eat fried chicken because you're black. You know what I mean? Like there are instances mm-hmm. throughout the film where this happens in reverse where Tony is sort of judged for his Italian upbringing in life and, and, and ethnicity. And so I loved that aspect of it because it was even, it was fair, it was equal. And it showed that it can be in anybody. And in this inherentness and casualness is something that we don't even notice inside of ourselves most of the time. That's, that's what makes it different than chosen hatred and anger type of racism. But getting back to what Vallelonga, Nick Vallelonga said, I'm going to read this, and I should have written down where I was quoting it from, from one of the articles I Googled <laughs> that had an interview with him. But he said a couple things. He said he didn't set out to make a movie about the world. Say, so first off, number one, he wasn't trying to have a message, okay? He's not trying to solve racism with a road trip. So we should not be expecting that, and we should not be judging the film for doing or not doing that, because that's not what his intent was. He says he just wanted to show the world through these characters' eyes. It's about the two guys in the car. It's really about their relationship and what they were going through during this horrendous time in our history. My dad was a product of the times and his environment. And that's not an excuse for anything, Valalonga says. All that went away, all that went away after he became friends with Dr. Shirley and after this crazy trip they took together and what all happened to them. Valalonga explains his father's personal growth as a result of not only his blossoming friendship with Shirley, but also seeing the atrocities of Jim Crow firsthand. Now, it wasn't just something you heard about. He saw it, he witnessed it, Valalonga says. Lip saw the ways in which Shirley was treated, from humiliating discrimination to brutal violence. My father was outraged by it, Valalonga says, of Shirley's multiple beatings down south. The fact that he couldn't use the restroom or eat in restaurants where he was performing. The fact that Lip had to use the Negro motorist's green book for which the film is named. Several scenes in the movie, often taking place in the pair's iconic teal-blue car, uh, depict Shirley educating Lip on some facet of his own racist tendencies. It's an aspect of the film that some have criticized, a black man having to teach a white man how not to be racist, and the feel-good ending when he appears to in fact have shaken those tendencies once and for all. Still, Valalonga insists his father was actually never the same. This particular trip really, really affected him and changed him. It changed the way he brought us up, he says. 
that everyone is equal and everyone is the same. So you want to call it a feel-good ending? Fine. You want to be mad about it? You're being mad that a man actually had a wonderful relationship with another man, and these two people were completely different ethnically, and it changed someone's life and the way that he raised his children. So I don't understand the criticism, because ultimately we are celebrating a story about a guy who was inherently racist, because that's how you grow up, and he stopped it in his generation. He stopped it in his family tree by experiencing this with Dr. Shirley. So now Nick Vallelonga grows up, and he's not inherently racist because of what his dad experienced and what his dad had in his relationship and friendship with Dr. Shirley. And it was a lifelong friendship. So, yeah. Yeah. I I look at a movie like this and everything that you're you're saying there, and I think that there's something – I can't and refuse to speak in – for the life of a black person because the friendships that I have, the stories they tell are very much real. They don't prevent me though from having healthy relationships with these black individuals. And I genuinely care for and want to understand some of those, if not as many of those struggles as I can in the capacity that only I know how as, as a white person. So I know that I'm limited because I will never experience those things because I will never experience those things. That doesn't mean that I'm refusing to admit that they exist. And I think that when it comes to filmmaking, the biggest criticism that I see coming from green book is the fact that we don't get to see more of the atrocity of what it may have been like or what it was like for Dr. Shirley to go through what he went through. This was not a series of beatings and beatings and beatings and beatings and beatings to just wear into the ground. The fact that he was hurt and he was punished and he was abused because of his skin color, because that is the narrative of racism, especially in particular in this time. And for me, when I when I look at this, I think where that criticism might stem from is the fact that somebody's life did change because you don't see that a lot. What you see, which I think makes stories more real on the big screen, is when stories end up ambiguous. When you have movies like Crash that deal with racism and some people don't change and some people do for different reasons. And for some reason, that feels a lot more real. And maybe it's because. That's the reality or that's the norm for what is experienced on a day-to-day, a week-to-week basis. When you can go through the internet and you can cherry pick those moments, those events that take place that further reinforce whatever your worldview is. You know, because we don't see and not and of course I don't know the internet completely, but we don't see an equal number of good success stories of non-racially charged or racial things that rise above that in the world of social media and in the world of Facebook and and the news. What we see are more events where a cop is doing something that's not cool. Cop is gunning down a black person. And that's the narrative that we hear all the time. That's the narrative that gets on because one, it has juice (laughs) 
because who really wants to hear the story about a cop that stops a black person and helps him change a flat tire? The person that's who not- does his job by treating everybody humanely, right? Because right. we expect it because that's the so, expectation. So I think it's possible. I really believe it's possible to recognize the existence of the tragedy that is racism, knowing that we want to change it, but also recognize the beauty that is the mind of people that are not, that are choosing not to be that way. And to me, Green Book needs to exist to, at the very least, combat the negativity of what is a reality. That's the balance for me. Yeah. And it's not whitewashing. It's not ignoring it. It's saying there are people out there, there are stories out there, and there are lives out there that are trying to do the right thing, and we need to celebrate those because those are the people that we need to get behind. Right. And and that's I think that's where my frustration comes from. But the thing is, I'm a white guy, and it's on some level I might be discredited because I'm not in that experience. But that doesn't negate the fact that I want to support that, you know, that I want to – be and support the end to racism. And if it's a movie like green book that can do that, then man, I fully endorse that. Yeah, me too, man. And I, and I hate, and that's a whole other conversation uh, that we we don't even need to get into about who's got the right to comment on such and such topics. Because, you know, in my opinion, everyone has a right to, to have an opinion. And if we're all trying to reach the same goals and that's, that's the key here. Like, you and I want to see racism eradicated. We do, we want a perfect world. Because of our faith-based standpoint, we, we, we know that that's never going to happen. That's a reality that will never be achieved um, on this earth as it exists right now. You know, this is an evil place with evil people. What we can do is we can get better every one, one at a time, every relationship. You know what I mean? And, and that's that's mm-hmm. truly what I believe is that it's in the hearts of each and every person. And I was telling somebody the other day, and this is backed up by what I said earlier about Green Book and how I th- I believe I see it. You know, Tony's life changed, which changed Nick's life and his siblings. This is a generational thing. You you don't necessarily fix it in the moment, but if our gener if this current generation starts to address their racist tendencies in nature and change it, then they raise children that also grow up in that mold and grow up without those racist tendencies and slowly but surely you end up with more and more generations that it it begins to die in you know what i mean and that's it's a long game it's a long game um and i think this movie shows that yeah we were talking tonight um i was with a group of friends and we were talking about again going back to our faith in particular with our kids how do we model Christianity with our kids? How deliberate do we get? And something that came out of it was a sense of we want our kids to see our relationship and our faith be something that's very normal. That's not a weird thing against a world where something else is normal. So I want my son to grow up in a house where talking about our faith, talking about Jesus and that relationship is just as normal to him as another family talking about whatever their worldviews are, where he doesn't see a relationship with Jesus as taboo or something that's weird. 
modeling that in a way that feels normal, that feels like it's like breathing in and out. And I think when it comes to racial tendencies, my, my dad came from um, a background where his parents didn't do that. They weren't racist. I mean, they saw, I'm, I'm not going to play that. They had black friends. I don't think they did. <laughs> I just think that they were ambi- ambivalent to it. And he had inherent racism in him. And he's trying to model that. Of course, his kids are grown up now, like me and my brother. But he's trying to model that as an adult. And that's echoing into my life where I'm not looking at racism as something that is just not talked about. It's something that is addressed as part of our culture because it is part of our culture and it needs to be talked about, but it needs to be talked about in a healthy way. Not only how to eradicate it, but how it exists and ways in which we can begin to alter the way in which we say and do things that can be translated or mistranslated. And I think when those things become normal, when really thinking consciously about the lives of individuals and the value of those individuals and what they bring to the table as far as their capabilities and their hopes and dreams and all that great stuff, that's when I think real lives are changed and real opinions are changed and perspectives are changed. Because as you said, Green Book articulates a relationship, not a message and not an anthem. It's a relationship. And that's really where all this starts is my individual relationships with the people in my life, whether they are black, whether they're Asian, whether they're Hispanic, people that are different from me and what they mean to my life and what I mean to theirs. What are they bringing to the table and what am I bringing to the table for them? And I think that's where it starts. All right. I'm going to put my soapbox away and we're going to get back to <laughs> the movie at hand. And if you don't have anything else, I think we should just drop right into our connecting points. I, we've been connecting for the last hour, my friend. So let's okay. just keep it going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I had, I had a hard time picking because there were a lot of outstanding performance moments. I really loved the big confrontation in, in, in the rain. The, in the rain. Okay, yeah, that. that was the closest contender for me as well. Yeah, but there was a there was one moment that, in its own subtle way, its own approachable way, stood out to me as as my connecting point. And that was Tony's conversation with Don just before he goes to the bar to turn down his Italian brethren's offer. So the whole thing is set up. He's outside. They're checking into a hotel and in Memphis, and uh, he sees these Italian guys. His his family and his familia and they basically are speaking in italian saying hey i've got you know ditch this guy i've got a better job it pays a lot more meet us in the bar at eight o'clock and he says okay i'll you know see you then and we're like okay what's going on here and to me the moment that came after this and it's like kind of pockets of moments but this particular moment was a real subtle shift in these two people beginning to understand each other Tony made this assumption that Don didn't know the offer was being given, and neither do we as an audience, because we're dumb just like him at this point. And Don, being versed in Italian, reveals to Tony, again, in this great little humorous way, that he does. He starts speaking to him in Italian. And Don, on the other hand, assumes that Tony is going to take the job. And through this Hail Mary of sorts to try to keep Tony employed, I love this little desperation. He goes, look, I'm officially going to offer you the the role of my manager. And 
you can hear just the desperation in his voice because he's like he didn't want to do this, but he's trying to do everything he can to keep him employed and to keep him from going downstairs. And I don't know if it's out of the preservation of the tour or preservation of his life or or who knows. But what I loved the most about this moment was this confident assurance that Tony was never going to take the offer. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, you pay me 125 a week plus expenses. That was the deal. And he walks away, goes down, walks down the stairs and says, I was just going to tell the guys that. Look, call me naive, but I really believe Tony in that moment. That was his intent the whole time. That was me believing in Tony, not believing the Italian and not making a stereotypical like these Italians. What are they going to do? You know, that kind of thing. But I really believed it in that moment that Tony was being genuine. And there's this really great look that both guys give each other as the scene ends, as if they both begin to understand that they are not who their culture has defined them to be. But they are more. And it's really accented in this beautiful way in the scene that follows where they're having this drink and Tony is telling all about his upbringing. And they're not really laughing, but they're just kind of they're having a conversation as friends. They're just learning about each other more. You know, Tony about Don. This moment is where I feel the film is trying to sell this sense that each relationship we have with someone is different. It can be significant if we find that thing that we connect with. And that thing that gives both people a sense of value. And I really think those kind of three scenes help to qualify that idea. And it was very touching. And it was, I think, what really summed up why I enjoyed the movie so much. Well, I could not agree with you more. Um, yes. Because I, I picked the same scene. A trophy room connecting point. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll have to see about that. But it is okay. it, it, well. I guess if you want to consider a trophy room in the terms of like, yeah, being we so, both same, thought the yes. same thing. Yes. It's a connecting point trophy room. <laughs> yeah. So so this is one of the primary scenes, along with the rain scene, which I feel is honestly Ali's Oscar moment. Um, right. Uh, and that this is one of the scenes that really helped me gush over his acting ability the most. And I think he's fantastic. I think he's phenomenal. I mean, I think. There are a lot of best actor performances this year that I found to be really great, and there are um, a lesser number of supporting performances that I've found to be as equally great, and I think Ali is right there um, for me as a, a no-brainer nomination because of how good he is. So when he approaches Tony, you know, he fully believes that Tony is meeting his friends to take another job, and you can read it all over his face. He is terrified. And... It's that desperation and hurt that, that comes out so strongly in his expressions. But yet, he still has this, he maintains a, a measure of calm. But you can sense that it's starting to crack in that moment for the first time. And I believe that he genuinely wants Tony in his life and can't bear to lose him. I believe that the friendship has been cemented right there already. The, the, the seeds have been growing and like you said, you know, he doesn't want to deal with having to lose his driver either um, and the ramifications of that. But I think he I think he doesn't want to lose Tony, Tony, the person. That's the, the feeling I get. And, you know, unlike you at first, Patrick, I was not convinced that Tony was never going to take that other job. I probably should have been, but I, I wanted to believe that. But I, f- I had a little bit of doubt. And regardless, I think that this interaction seals the deal 
that even if he did have any doubts, that when he walked away from this conversation, the decision was made at that point. So whether he was going down there to take the job or not, which odds are no. I mean, he's, his character has shown us in the very beginning of the film that he doesn't do this kind of crime. He's not that kind of guy, right? He's the anti-mob guy. He's not that kind of Italian, going back to these racial stereotypes. So the odds of him taking it were low anyway. But I think, at the very least, when he walks away from the way that he interacts with Don Shirley right here, there was no chance. He was staying because this was his guy. These were friends. And I love that Shirley nervously asks him, about the YMCA incident. He brings it up and he's kind of like embarrassed and feels like it's affected, maybe affected Tony's decision making. And Tony shrugs it off with this understanding smile and he says, don't worry about it. I know the world is a complicated place. And I loved it, man. I love that line. It, it just connected with me so much because it was like in that moment, there was no judgment. There is just a mutual respect between two human beings and, and a budding friendship on both sides and both of them expressing it as best they can to each other in their own ways. And it's just really, really sweet. So I, I loved it as well. So good, man. So good. I love that we have the same connecting point. Just further goes to solidify what a, what a great movie this is and what a great conversation this was. I really enjoyed this. This is, um, didn't know where it was going to go. Cause this is, uh, Definitely a movie that has a lot to say in many regards, and I, I hope we did it justice with this conversation. Um, we appreciate you guys for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, you, of course, can do that uh, over social media. You can find me particularly on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can uh, at me or tag me. That's the best way to get me involved in the conversation, just to give me a friendly hello, and um, I'll be glad to hook up in that conversation. As Aaron mentioned earlier, we are going to be covering Ratatouille, and that'll be coming your way on Friday, December 7th. Really excited to watch that and talk about that. And then next week, we'll get out our British accents and talk Mary Poppins. It's going to be a lovely little conversation, followed up by Mary Poppins Returns. I know, it's a terrible English accent, but I had to do my best because that's who I am. So be sure to check us out in the next couple of weeks as we rock and roll with those two episodes. There will be no English accents from me. I'm not doing that. That's <laughs> you can be Dick Van Dyke all you want, but uh, I'm gonna try and Mary steer. Poppins. That's 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 not bad. That's pretty good. I'm excited to talk about that one for sure. Um, listeners, if you want to connect with me on social media, you can always do that on Twitter at Feelin Film. It's a good place where I like to engage and am active as can be. You can also do that in our Feelin' Film Facebook group, which we like to direct everybody's attention to at all times, because that is where cinephiles of all kinds are gathering to discuss movies and have conversations all day long, every week. It's a great place, and uh, we'd love to have you come be a part of that. Links are in the show notes, and links are on the website, and you can also just as easily search it up in Facebook itself, Feelin' Film Discussion Group, and find it that way. Also, if you've enjoyed what you heard and you wouldn't mind, we would love reviews. Just Drop us a quick review with a few sentences about why you enjoy the show and a, a good good number of stars, hopefully on the high side, if you did enjoy us, and that would help us out a lot. It, it does help to kind of show our presence online and maybe kind of sway other new listeners to check us out and uh, become part of the Feelin' Film 
family as well. So thank you for listening, and uh, we would love for you to do that. Fantastic. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling good. Thank you.